0: was well, a privilege to be here with you this morning. Uh, many of us gathered last Sunday to celebrate the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and what a great time of celebration as we gathered and, and just acknowledged the fact that we worship a risen Savior, that Jesus did indeed die for our sins, was resurrected for our salvation. And, and we focus a lot on Jesus as Savior, but we understand that Jesus is Savior and Lord. And so this morning I want to look a little more closely at what does it mean that Jesus is Lord as we continue our series, Messiah? Jesus is Lord. Now, Jesus is Savior and Lord. And when we look at Jesus as Lord, we want to understand what's meant by Lord. Well, in the common vernacular, the way we typically use the word, it's, it's a word that's a, used for somebody who has some type of status or authority. It's fallen out of favor, of course, in our own culture. Uh, but still, in England, you can find people who are declared lords, I guess, and because of their position or their status or so forth. But throughout the history of humanity, the term has been used uh, as as that type of thing. You know, this is this is acknowledging the fact that you have this style, status, this authority, or or this type of power. Uh, and, and when we look at the Gospels, it's equally true as sometimes it's used of Jesus. In fact, in Matthew chapter 8 and 15, um, there are two occasions where we see this. In one of them, there's a leper, and the leper's calling out to be healed, and he calls Jesus Lord. And in this case, he, he's not acknowledging Jesus' divinity, he, he's acknowledging that Jesus is a powerful teacher and healer. And, and in the Gospels, up to this point, that's how the words used to Jesus actually that people did acknowledge that there was something different about him. Was it his status? Maybe he's a prophet. Was it his power? He obviously can heal. He can obviously provide quite a lunch to 5,000 people, you know? And and so they acknowledge these things. But something changes after the resurrection. After the resurrection, this this title of Lord, when applied to Jesus, is, is used differently. When Jesus first appears to the disciples after his resurrection... Uh, Timothy's not there, Thomas isn't there, Thomas isn't there. And and so the the disciples tell Thomas, hey, listen, uh, Jesus has been resurrected. And Thomas says, well, I won't believe unless I see the nail holes in his hand and where the spear thrusted into his side. And Jesus appears again, Thomas is there this time. And Jesus shows him the holes in his hands. He shows him where the, the spear thrusted into his side. And this is this is Thomas's profession. He says, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. And from this point forward, the disciples and the apostles, when they talk about Jesus as Lord, they're affirming that he's God. But he's king of kings and Lord of lords. In fact, Peter, his first message after Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came in power upon the church, he's sharing his very first message. And listen to what he what he says, it's recorded for us in Acts 2, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So we see that throughout the, throughout the New Testament, when Jesus is referred to as Lord, it's not just uh, position it's not just status in the sense that that word is has typically been used now it's it's elevated to say, no, no, Jesus is God, his status is far beyond any any mere humans his his power is is, is endless in fact, Paul writes in Romans ten verse nine it's it's probably the o- oldest confession of the church in fact, some Bible scholars say that Paul was just simply writing what many churches would would profess during their services at the time Romans ten nine If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And of course, this confession is is an outward expression of an inward work of God, the belief that God raised Jesus from the dead, that his resurrection, everything that's tied with it, such as the fact that Jesus died for our sins, that's all sort of encompassed within this confession. And here it is. Saving faith, saving faith is not mere intellectual agreement, but deep inward trust in Christ at the core of one's being. It's not just intellectual agreement. It is that. We, we intellectually understand what the gospel is, but it's trust in Christ himself at the core of our being. Now, what's meant by the statement, Jesus is Lord? Well, again, it means Jesus is God. Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth, and he's the Lord of lords and King of kings. In fact, the very word that Paul uses there, Kyrios in the Greek, he chooses specifically, he could have used other words. And this word Kyrios, if you look at, at ancient Greek literature, you'll find that that word was used as, as a way of saying someone's status or a way of showing someone's authority. But that word's used differently in the Greek Old Testament. We call it a Septuagint. The Greek Old Testament uses the word Kyrios anywhere where in the Hebrew you found the word Yahweh or Adonai, which are the names of God. So the Greek Old Testament, you you would see instead of Yahweh, Kyrios, and instead of Adonai, Kyrios. And, And what Paul is proclaiming is, and what our confession is, is that Jesus is
1: Lord, is that Jesus is God. We acknowledge that. That he's creator of the universe but he's savior of our soul, but he's Lord of all. And so if Jesus is Lord of all, it begs the question,
0: how ought we respond to him? If Jesus is indeed Lord, how are we to respond to Jesus as Lord? And the good news is Jesus tells us. Jesus tells us. It's not something we have to sort of figure out on our own. In Luke 9, 23, he gives us the answer. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus so says, you want to be my follower? follower? Deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. Now, what's the context? What, what's happening leading up to Jesus making this amazing statement about what it means to follow him, this very clear statement of what it means to follow him? Well, we find that in, in Luke chapter 9, that the account begins, the chapter begins with Jesus sending out the 12 to to preach the gospel. And then after that, we find that Herod hears about Jesus and he's a little perplexed by who this Jesus is and the stories he's hearing about him. We we know that Jesus feeds the 5,000 in this chapter. Peter's confession is there. You may recall the account where Jesus asked, you know, the disciples, he says, who do people say that I am? Then finally he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the promised one. And then Jesus foretells of his death. He tells him of his death, and he says, but tell nobody. And then right after all these amazing events, Jesus says, listen, if you really want to follow me,
1: Luke 9, 23, then deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Jesus,
0: in one short short statement, describes what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. He describes our our, our real response, our genuine response that we should have to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And he shares three things. When we look at how ought we respond to Jesus as Lord, he shares three things. The first is we ought to deny ourselves in following him. People are willing to pay a high price for, for something they value. Isn't that the truth? People pay a high price for things that they value. How many of you have a hobby? You know what I'm talking about. And so it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus would put such a high value in being one of his followers. In fact, he says three things. You must be willing to deny yourself. You must be willing to take up your cross. You must be willing to literally follow him. And anything less than that, really, when we think about it, is superficial lip service. But it begs the question, what does it really mean to deny Christ? And and in its essence, ultimately, the purpose of denying ourselves is to glorify God. That we really can't exalt ourselves and exalt God at the same time, and we can't exalt other things and exalt God at the same time. So when we deny ourselves, what we're really doing is glorifying God. And it's really talking about the the greatest battle we have in our life, and that's who's going to sit on the throne of our
1: heart. Is it going to be us? someone or something else? Or is it going to be God? And the
0: way I explain this, and I don't know a better way to explain it, and yet when I explain it this way, it sounds a little silly, and yet I think it's the best way I know how to explain it is that denying ourselves doesn't mean that we throw away our personality. It doesn't mean we throw away our differences, our uniqueness. It just means we place it in the hands of God. In other words, you know, we can go through life with the me-me, you know, I'm sort of, I'm going to be on the throne of my life. It's me-me, it's all about me. Or it can be me, Christ, where I give myself over to him and he begins to, to do the work of forming me into that person that he created in me, apart from the fall, apart from all the, the bad parts of, of that exist in me. In other words, when I say it's me, me, the only thing that flourishes is really my selfishness. But when I say me, Christ, what begins to flourish is that, is that part of me that, that becomes, begins to reflect Christ and the other part of me begins to die. As Christ occupies the throne of our hearts, it's only then that he leads us through the power of his Holy Spirit. And I think that's, that's, that's the struggle, isn't it? That we come to Jesus as Savior, but we wrestle with the Lordship of Christ in our lives. And part of it is, is because we just want to do things our own way. We're in a situation we think, well, I know best. I wanted to have this type of outcome and we work so hard at it. And I just ask you a simple question. How has it worked for you <laughs> to do it your own way? <laughs> And Jesus says, if you need rest, come to me. If you need power, come to me. If you need wisdom, come to me. But he doesn't mean come to me as me, me. He means come to me as me, Christ. Christ sitting on the throne of our life and and leading us and directing us and empowering us. See, only through Christ's power and leading can we genuinely glorify him and be blessed and bless others. I mean, think about that. Only through Allowing Jesus to be Lord of our life, can he be glorified? And only when he's glorified are we truly blessed and only when we're truly blessed can we really be a blessing to those around us. And since Jesus is Lord, it only makes sense we should deny ourselves in following him. But there's one more thing he says. We ought to imitate him. Imitate him. Christians are called Christ followers because what? They follow the Lord. They imitate him. They obey his commands. They, They take up their cross daily. Now, what does it mean to take up your cross daily? Now, for us, we have to look back in history, but for those who first heard Christ, they they would have exactly knew what he was talking about because in the day of Christ, people were, were killed by execution. In fact, the Romans had perfected the art of execution through crucifixion. They had worked really hard to make it as excruciating as possible. And when they crucified someone, they usually did it in public places, on on roadways and hills like with Jesus, so that people could see it. It was a a sign of their authority. It was to bring fear among the masses and say, if you mess with us, this is what awaits you. Further, not only did they do that, but insult to injury. They weren't going to carry your cross. If they were going to crucify you, you carried your cross to the place you were going to be executed. You were to deny yourself. You were to bend your knee to Rome and carry that thing all the way there. Now, applied to Christian disciples, then it means identifying entirely with Jesus's message, even to the point of death. Think about that. Even to the point of death. In other words, we we deny our selfish desires to use our time and our talent, our treasure, our testimony for the building up of our own kingdom. But we say, Lord, I'm going to do it for your kingdom. But you're my everything. I don't need anything but you. Carrying one's cross is giving our entire lives to Jesus no matter where he leads. It, it, it's it, The Christian life, it, it, we understand when we look at it, it's not easy. How many of you found that to be true? The Christian life is not easy. I've heard preachers and they preach and they act like the Christian life is easy. As if you become a Christian and all of a sudden everything is flowers and everything else is good. And I go, what gospel are they reading? It's not in scripture. God doesn't promise that. It will happen to those who are in Christ. It's called paradise. I've read about it. It sounds like a great place, but I haven't been there yet. How about you? We live where there's still sickness. We live where there's still disruption in relationships. We live where there's still horrible things happening throughout the world. And so the Christian life isn't easy. But listen, none of life is easy on this side of paradise. Isn't that the truth? So it's not that the Christian life is easy. It's just best. It's best because we get a foretaste of what it means to be with Christ in paradise. What do you mean we get a foretaste? Because the scripture tells us that when we come to Jesus and make him Lord of our life, forsaking all else, then the peace that surpasses all understanding can fill our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I have a friend going through a particular difficult situation and I asked him just the other day, I said, how are you doing? He said, I have a peace that I can't understand. I said, that sounds really scriptural. He says, the more I try to take this thing back, he goes, the more miserable I feel, the more I find
1: myself giving it to the Lord, the more peace he gives me. Go figure. Rest. We live in a day and age with
0: so much technology, and I I don't know about you, but I lived in a day when they were talking about this technology coming, and they said, when it comes, you're going to have much more time. You're not going to work so hard. I don't know about you, but sometimes I think the best thing that could ever happen to me is I lost my phone.
1: I would actually have more time not doing this all the time, not answering it, not being text. I'm old enough to remember the days where you could just say, oh, I'm really sorry. I
0: just wasn't near a phone. I loved it when my kids got their cell phone. You said, I can't believe you're saying that. I said, they had no excuse when I wanted to get a hold of them. I had all the excuses in the world. Hey, mom, I'm sorry. I was away from a phone. We were outside, right? Come on. That's gone. You have no excuse. Someone texts you, they expect you to text them right away. Someone emails you, they expect you to email right away. And you're like, man, it was
1: so much easier. I said, I'm sorry, I didn't check the mail. Things are hectic. Things are crazy, always have been. Jesus says, come
0: to me and find rest. Come to me and find peace. Come to me and find strength. Following Christ is is a price worth paying because it pays eternal dividends. And after all, when you think about it, a follower of Christ is is a person who follows Jesus, who's being changed by Jesus and committed to his mission. And, And when we do that, that there's really nothing we can fear. I was talking to a friend just this past week. We were talking about death. And he said, why is it that we as Christians fear death so much? He said, it doesn't really make any sense. I mean, last week we gathered, many of us in church, as church to We gathered together and we worshiped the fact that death has no sting because Jesus has conquered death for us. Amen? Think about it. But why do we then fear it? It's because this is what we know. And the more we trust Jesus, the more we'll trust that what he's saying about our future is true. The more we try to do things our own, the more we question that. I think of Paul. Paul must have been one of the most frustrating opponents to ever have. I mean, it would take Paul and parts of the gospel, I mean, parts of the New Testament, we find him, we piece it all together. Like they took Paul and they would say to him at times, you cannot preach the gospel anymore. If you do, we will beat you. And there's occasion where Paul would say something like this. Well, to be beaten would make me identify with Jesus. And that's a good thing. Well, then I'll kill you. There's a part in the, in the recording of Paul where we find out in his life where, where he was told that, well, we'll kill you. And he said, well, listen, to, be, to die is to gain because then I'll be with Jesus. To be separated from the body is to be with him. Well, maybe we'll let you go. Then I'll preach the gospel. What do you do to him? What do you do to a man who's literally given it all to Jesus and said, you know what? This isn't about this world. It isn't about my life. I'll give it all to him. You can take nothing from someone who's given it all up
1: and has gained everything in the process. Jesus said, if you wish to keep your life, you're going to what? Lose it. But if you lose your life, give it to him, you'll. When we understand that Jesus is Lord, we begin to to understand that. The last thing that, that Jesus says is,
0: we ought to invest our lives in his service. See, if this present life is most important to us, we'll do anything we can to not lose the safety of it. But if Christ is more important, we'll do anything for him. We'll do things that seem crazy, that get up on a beautiful day like this and come and gather as his church and worship him. The world goes, why would you do that? And we go, because there's no greater blessing to be together as a church worshiping the Lord. They may not understand it, but they can see it. And when they see it consistently, they're drawn to him. Here it is in a nutshell. Jesus' disciples, his followers, Christians, are not to live for their own pleasure, but for the service of the Lord. And here's the interesting thing. When that happens, we gain everything in losing what we thought we had anyway, which wasn't really ours. Being a disciple of Christ acknowledges him as Lord, and it requires not just the denying of things. It means the denying of self. It means, Lord, you're going to be Lord of my life. You are in control. Jesus, you are Lord. And Jesus being Lord is true whether we acknowledge it or not. In fact, Paul writing about this very truth of Jesus being Savior and Lord and the acknowledgement of everyone in the end of time, he says this in Philippians 2, 9-11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's interesting, Jesus... That Paul looks at Jesus' past, what he's done, to look at where he is being exalted. And he says, listen, Jesus humbled himself. The humiliation of Christ, he humbled himself. How did he do that? Well, he took upon his, his divinity, humanity. He came, he was born in modest means, he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins, resurrected for our salvation, ascended to the Father. Preparing a place for us is going to come back and take us home. And it's interesting, Paul says this, he says, he was humiliated, he was humbled and exalted. Do you know what the scripture says about us? The scripture says, if you will humble yourself, God will exalt you. See a pattern? Jesus humbled himself, now he's exalted, name above all names. The gospel says, humble yourself and you will be exalted by God. You'll be lifted up.
1: Try to, get, try to hold on to your life, you'll lose it. Give it over to the Lord, you'll gain it. So the gospel teaches us. Think about it. We can either choose to, to
0: worship Jesus as Savior and Lord today or wait until the end when everyone's going to do it. There'll be a day when everybody, all the people who say, Jesus is nothing, he's not real. When they stand before the Lord, when he returns, every tongue will confess him as Lord. But there's a difference. Today, on this side of paradise, we get to choose him as Savior and Lord. We get to have him be the Savior of our life, but once he returns, we don't have that choice anymore. We will will declare him Lord, but he will not be our Savior. But here's the good news. If you're sitting here this morning or listening online,
1: you have time to choose, to come to Jesus, to receive his love and his salvation and his leadership in
0: your life. To come to Jesus and find rest, to come to Jesus and find strength, to come to Jesus and enter into that relationship, which deep down
1: all of us long for,
0: to walk with him. Today, you can find rest in
1: him, follow him, come to Jesus, the Lord. One of my favorite quotes from A.W. Tozer, who's one of my favorite
0: authors and And I have to read, however, I have to reread him sometimes because he's profoundly much smarter than I am. And so sometimes I have to read him over and over again. But this statement was so clear, I only had to read it once to get it. A.W. Tozer wrote this. He said, the only safe place for sheep is by the shepherd. Think about that. The only safe place, we're the sheep. The only safe place for sheep is by the shepherd. The devil does not fear the sheep. He fears the devil. Think about that for a minute.
1: Do you ever feel like the world, the flesh, and the devil's against you? If you don't, they are. Ever feel like you're being pounded by life? And, and well, where's the safest place to be? It's not out on our own. It's next
0: to the shepherd. It's next to Jesus. And I don't know why, but I was reading this and, and my mind went back to my childhood, and that's the way my mind works. It can be a little peculiar, but you gotta deal with it. That's who I am. And, and there I was, and I was thinking back, I was 10 years old, and my, my brother's four years younger than me, he was six. we were playing outside about three houses down from my house. And Andy Millis, who was a high schooler who lived down the street, who was very, very mean. Looking back, I think he could not pick on other high schoolers. He probably wasn't able to do that. He probably would have gotten beat up. So he would come down and pick on us every once in a while. So he came down to our side of the street and he messed with my brother. He's six years old. Picture this. Andy's a high schooler. And my brother took nothing from nobody. He was like crazy as a kid. And I don't know what Andy did to him, but he picked up a piece of broken asphalt and threw it at Andy and it broke on his back. And Andy turned around and I knew what was going to happen. Who's the older brother? So I said to Eric, I said, run, get dad. So he ran. Andy was a little stunned and he looked at me, then I realized, oh, this is not going to be good. I'm going to get beat up. This is not going to be a David and Goliath thing. Goliath's going to triumph, Andy being Goliath, me being not David. And this was going to be a bad deal. So I did the only thing I knew how to do, and I started running run toward our house, too. We were three houses down. Now, something you may realize by looking at me, God designed me to, to be very sturdy and strong winds, but not to be very fast and running. Uh, this has never been my thing. So I'm running, figuring he's going to catch me at some point, and this is going to be really bad. And as I'm running, I'm looking back at Andy the whole time. I'm not looking ahead like any good runner would do, but I'm not a good runner anyway, and so I'm looking at him.
1: And all of a sudden, Andy stops, and his eyes are as big as a saucer. I went, what is going on? God came through.
0: And I turned around, and there was my dad. No dad came through. And Andy was looking at my dad, and my dad was looking at him. My dad was staring him down. Andy turned around, got on his bike, and rode down to his side of the street. And I got over to my dad, and I was standing next to dad as he was riding down the street just looking at him like, like I had power, right? Like, oh, you went down, no, it was because of dad. And I thought about this statement of A.W. Tozer, and that reminded me of that story because I thought I never felt more secure
1: and safe and powerful than when I stood next to my father at that moment when Andy sort of fleed. Why do we try to do life on our own? And then wonder why we're getting beat up, scared, directionless. When the Lord invites us to stand next to him, where everyone's going to proclaim him as Lord, do you think he has power? Do you think he can be true to his word? Do you think he can give you what you need in the moment you need it? But don't be away from
0: him. Be close to him. Come to Jesus as Savior and Lord. In just a moment, we're going to be partaking of communion together. It's a time where we we spend in remembrance of Christ dying for our sins, being resurrected for our salvation. And, And all that means is that what he did was he provided a way for us to stand close to him, to be in relationship with him, to allow the resources of heaven once again to flow through our lives to those around us. And it's a beautiful time of taking communion. But, but dare I say this morning, may it not just be a time of remembrance, may be a time of recommitment to say, Lord, you are
1: my Lord. Not just by my lips, but by my life. I am yours. You are mine. Come to Jesus, our Lord and Savior this morning. Celebrate the one who wants to stand with you as you stand with him. No more me, 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 Christ. All for Jesus. All for him. And when we do that, we gain life. Amen, church? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so
0: much for the offer of life that we have with you. And I talked a great deal about the price that that it cost us. I talked about the heavenly dividends and Yet the reality of it is the cost that it costs us is far less than the cost it costs you. (laughs) That you love us so much that you left the splendor of heaven. You took upon your divinity, humanity. You were born such modest means, lived a perfect life, died for our sins, resurrected for our salvation. You've ascended. You're, You're preparing a place for us and promised to come back and take us home and yet you fill us with your spirit. You're with us right now. You're here in this place, you're working. And God, I pray whether on this candidate with campus or wherever the people may be watching this online, that God, the genuine nature of your love for the each and every one of us would be, would be felt. More importantly, that it would be believed because you didn't just say you loved us, you demonstrated it on the cross. May we stand close to you. May we receive you, Lord Jesus. Even in this moment, if someone's yet to say yes to you as Lord and Savior, why not at this moment come to Jesus? Receive him as Savior and Lord of your life. For all of us, Lord God, whether we're standing next to you or whether we need to stand next to you, may we all leave this place standing next to you. May you have your way in and through us. Help us follow your example. Help us live for you. And as we humble ourselves, we realize it's you who exalts us. Thank you for such a beautiful blessing, Lord God, that we can spread to others as we scatter throughout this region after this service, sharing your love and message with those in the places where we live, where we go to school, where we work, where we play. Have your way in us, and Lord God, thank you. Thank you for all you've done to provide for such a life. In Jesus' name, amen.